Hello and welcome to our Rights in Action. I am Leila Shukrun. I'm Professor of International Law and Director of the Democratic Citizenship Theme here at the University of Portsmouth. I'm bringing you conversations with academics and activists who are working across the world to challenge inequalities in human rights and international law and who are working to improve the lives of people everywhere. A seemingly removed body of international economic law actually has very, very practical, direct implications for the everyday lives of people who may be living in a given locality. We are starting our conversation with an exploration of Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS. International investment law is primarily set up around the protection of foreign investment. That focus doesn't really do justice to this greater complexity of rights at stake. This form of arbitration, so to speak, is shrouded in secrecy, and for good reasons. Its lack of complexity is often selling short the rights of citizens, costing us billions and exploiting our resources for the benefit of foreign investors. Or at least this is the perception the public often has about ISDS. Let's listen to Lorenzo Cotula a principal researcher in law and sustainable development at the International Institute for Environment and Development. Lorenzo is working at the intersection of people, law and the natural environment, which means that he understands why the public might struggle to immediately see why the actions of big corporations and states impact their human rights. International dispute settlement raises very complex technical issues, but ultimately what is at stake is fundamentally political choices about how different interests are reconciled, private interests, public interests. Corporations are suing countries over their interests and settling these disputes outside court. Nations are paying billions in compensation to investors and third parties. Lawyers are making a fortune. And who's paying? the taxpayers and the citizens of these states. Again, that's the public perception. But what if this public perception was actually true? Between 1972 and 1993, an environmental disaster was quietly taking place in the northeast corner of the Amazon rainforest. 30 billion gallons of toxic waste and crude oil were being dumped as waste from an extraction program. Rivers were turned black, cancer and birth defects surged amongst adjacent communities. Livelihoods were destroyed. The Chevron Texaco case, also known as the Amazon Chernobyl, has been named as the environmental trial of the century, with multiple stakeholders involved. In 1993, 30,000 Amazon inhabitants and small-scale farmers took Texaco to court, and when Chevron purchased Texaco, they also bought this responsibility. In 2011, the Ecuadorian government then found Chevron guilty for this extensive polluting in an 18-year legal battle. We have here democratically some national court judgment. But that wasn't the end of it. Today, no compensation has been paid to those who continue to be impacted by toxic pollution in the environment because Chevron sued the state right back and in multiple fora. This case abolished the strong assumptions about the supposed depolitization of the system and the manipulation of all kinds of rules and tools to achieve impunity and unlimited investors' protection. After almost 40 years of complex litigation, starting on 1993 in New York, and being the domestic ju judgment against Chevron still not informed, the victims for environmental damage, almost 30,000 indigenous people, have not got any kind of compensation, and they are at risk to be ordered to pay litigation and legal costs in favor of Chevron. 
Amazingly, the Equatorian government was landed with a bill for a yet undisclosed amount to pay off the firm, all because of the use of public instrument in international law, which allows an investor to sue a country. And as you understood, it's called ISDS, or Investor State Dispute Settlement. Chevron Texaco won their award and by proposing that evidence delivered by the Equatorian state was flawed and corrupted. And across the 18-year legal battle, witnesses' memories and the truth has faded. Dr. Sebastian Espinoza is a specialist in regulatory affairs and investment law based in Ecuador. Sebastian has worked extensively on international investment law and indeed ISDS. In countries with weak governance like Ecuador, where the relationship between international and domestic law is still unsettled, it is not strange that foreign policy and domestic policy are divorced. Therefore, in the period of almost 40 years, starting in 1965 with the first BIT signed, between Ecuador and Germany, Ecuador underwent crucial transformations. And the adoption of VITs had been unnoticed and remained shielded from these changes until 2001, when the avalanche of investment disputes boomed. As a research-rich developing country, Ecuador has experienced a great deal of foreign investment and exploitation since 1965 in particular. Sebastian described his country as a once obedient disciple to international investment law. But since 2001, the explosion of investor-state disputes has changed everything and the state is suffering with enormous numbers of proceedings. During this period, Ecuador signed 30 VITs and further international treaties enabling the functioning of the system of investor protections like the ICIT Convention of 1986. It is noteworthy that Ecuador, a little developing country with marginal incidents in the international legal arena, had become one of the top respondents of investment claims, mainly on extractive industries. Ecuador has faced all kinds of investment claims, which shows the unlimited access to the system as a parallel mechanism of adjudication, and also as an appeal mechanism to all kinds of mothers and subjects. As you know, the remedies of the system are prompt and effective as in any other system of international law. The catch-all provisions of investment protection allow to trigger disputes in any area. Also, the retrospective compensation on issues that would never have been compensated under domestic law triggers this hazard. Yes, we can point out that many cases, like the cases over the windfall profit tax on oil revenues triggered by sovereign actions. Also, the prohibition to gambling set forth by the National Constituent Assembly in 2008, which received the notice of arbitration by the casino industry. Also, the parallel proceedings, both as investment claim and human rights complaints, derived from a judgment of defamation against a very well-known newspaper supposedly owned by foreign investors. How is this allowed to happen legally? ISDS is there to protect the rights of foreign investors. And it does effectively allow an investor to sue a country of a breach of a treaty. This might be of a, the investor's rights to exploit a given resource or any other very technical and precise element of an international treaty, often a bilateral investment agreement and sometimes as well a given contract between the investor and the states. But ISDS instrument is open to exploitation as well and corporations are sometimes making a fortune out of the loopholes or rather the complexity of the international legal system. This kind of case is just one example of how investor-state dispute settlement can be misused to great public injustice. In the next example, Sebastian outlines how the Equatorian Tax Authority refused the application of VAT refunds by foreign investors and in particular Occidental. 
What's more, it requested Occidental return previously reimbursements that it had received through a contract with Petro Equator, the state-owned corporation for oil exploration and production. On 2012, in the case Occidental versus Ecuador, the country was held liable for the breach of the VAT with the U.S. on the basis that domestic law was too harsh. The investor was awarded damages in more than $1 billion, being at the time the largest ICSIS award in history. $1 billion. So is investor state dispute settlement not fit for purpose, or is it just in need for some reform? I spoke to Zarush Zawalia. He set up Zawalia & Co. in 1982 in London and has extensive experience in international arbitration and effective dispute resolution, mediation, alternative dispute resolution as well. I asked Saroj if he thought that ISDS was still a good system. I don't know how many of the investment dispute related awards I actually paid because it's difficult to enforce against the government. So we get lots of these investment arbitration cases coming up, but the cost is a big factor. So to get funding is not easy. So it's very costly for the states and as you said, sometimes they don't have these resources or they don't want to invest because they have other priorities. And at the same time, you said something really important. We don't really know how many of these investment cases are really enforced against the state in particular. Yeah, I don't think that any investment at all have been actually enforced because to enforce against the government is not easy. Mm-hmm. Now, we, have, we started this investment arbitration against Africa for this Australian, Russian-Australian group. Uh, but to enforce against the South African court to take years and years mm-hmm. and not pro- realistic prospect of seizing the government properties. Most of the time, these cases can be really difficult for states and investors alike to fund. And so sometimes they are settled through other means. But there are plenty of cases where Zarosh is ethically motivated to challenge the status quo. This was no more so than on a recent case in Venezuela. If you're fighting for justice, you must be, have the silent courage to even take the approach which has not historically been taken. Now, the appeal in the Venezuelan case ended on 24th of July. And when the new evidence has come in, it's very unusual to ask the Supreme Court to consider, but we made one application for allowing new evidence. This is 31, not very simple, but 31 tons of coal, value to $2 billion. It belongs to the people of Venezuela. The government holds it on the benefit of it in trust for the people of Venezuela. This will be used for the benefit of the people of Venezuela. Maduro was elected as president. The local court, Supreme Court, confirmed his election. The President Trump said, no, no, the election was rigged. But that is a breach of the United Nations Charter. Mm-hmm. It expressly provides that one country cannot interfere in the internal affairs of a sovereign state. And here, what the Britain and America are doing are saying that, look, we don't like the fact that of President Maduro's election, and we think it was rigged, and therefore we don't recognize him, but we recognize somebody a stranger as a president of Venezuela. And the issue before the Supreme Court is, who is authorized on behalf of Venezuela to instruct Bank of England to ship the gold back to Venezuela? And the Bank of England governor is saying that my government does not recognize President Maduro, recognize President Guaido, but he has no office. So supposing you succeed, what happens to the gold? It has to go to, it'll go to the Federal Reserve, not to the people of Venezuela. I, I always believe that law is for justice, and we must, we must not hesitate to say that. As you understood, the ISDS claims can set off a chance of problems. Let's look now at an example or two from India. I spoke with Justice Shri Krishna, former India Supreme Court Justice and now an independent lawyer, arbitrator and advisor. Justice Shri Krishna, you have been called by the Indian government a few years ago to write an important report on investor state dispute settlement at the time India was envisaging the reform of its system, its bilateral investment treaty system, but also this, its dispute settlement system. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? In about 1990, the economy was so much uh, 
not very liberal. In 1990, there was the sudden liberalization of the economy and the floodgates were opened for foreign investment. I think at that soon thereafter, there were 70 to 75 investment treaties were uh, uh, signed. The DITs, what we call the bilateral investment treaties, were signed. With the hope that there would be a lot of investment, India acted as a principal host country. And most of them were from uh, Europe, from England, from Hong Kong, China and countries like that. So this plan started very well. Foreign investors were pouring into India's economy. And then a problem appeared with the double power company case. This company was formed in 1992 to manage the double power plan, the goal of which was to sell electricity to the Indian government. This company formed with investment from the US and American companies like Enron, GE and Bester, as well as five other lenders. But financing was refused by the World Bank because of a lack of transparency. Luckily for the government as well as for Dabur Corporation, that was quickly settled. Although there was an adverse uh, reaction, that was quickly settled and that did not really bother anybody much. There were various stops and starts as the dispute between the state and the investors simply rumbled on. The plot was completed in 2001, but the fundamentally risky finances meant that when Enron collapsed, the plant itself changed hands. But what chain of events did this dispute between investor and the state set into motion? The next biggest setback was, uh, there was some, the first setback was in white industries. White industries was a case that really gave a bit of a shock to the government of India. One of the reasons which really caused concern was that in white industries, the arbitral tribunal took the view that the inability of the judicial process to quickly resolve issues was denial of the investor rights under the investment treaty. And that was a serious issue because, I mean, in India, the judicial system has been quite slow for various reasons. The process is very slow and therefore this was a matter of great concern for everybody. A fascinating case indeed, White Industries, an Australian engineering and foundry company, was awarded four million Australian dollars against the state-owned mining company called India in a Paris-seated arbitration tribunal. But judicial delays followed. It took nearly nine years for the award to be settled and India was found liable, having not provided White Industries the means for asserting claims and enforcing rights. The disputes started piling in against the Indian state then. Soon thereafter, there were about uh, 15 or 16 notices issued by various uh, uh, investors for this BIT's dispute resolution. And that naturally snowballed into an issue which was going out of control. So the government of India then said, let's sit down and see what exactly is the process. Why is it that we are losing one after another and why are being slapped with so many of them. In the meanwhile, you had this Vodafone dispute, which was said, which was the BIT dispute. Then all of them also come came to fall. So the government then they said it's time to set up a deep notice, and that is how this uh, committee was formed to examine various issues and then suggest and implement the methodology of how to deal with uh, bilateral investment treaty. That is how that is the background against which. This committee was set up to make a report. So a committee was set up. But what solution did it find for India's growing problem with investors raising disputes? Well, firstly, it seems like nobody was clear which department should be dealing with which disputes in India. So if there is an investor who wants to raise a dispute, let's say it's an investment with regard to an airline's industry. Should the notice go to the Ministry of Aviation? Should it go to the Ministry of Economic Affairs? Should it go to the Law Department? Should it go to the Home Minister? Nobody knew what it was. What happens is a notice may be going to the hands of the wrong department and it may lie there for years together without nobody noticing it. And in the meanwhile, the dispute will go on and an ex parte order will be recorded by the tribunal. Therefore, it was necessary, first of all, to streamline the dispute procedure. 
So we said that, look, we took a lot of uh, uh, international, uh, in fact, uh, as you remember, we had a, a big seminar on this issue, we invited people to make presentations. And uh, as a result of all the presentation, we came across five points which needed to be streamlined. So they did find the problem, how to fix it, right? First was dispute management procedure. When a dispute arises, who deals with it? What are the steps to be taken? When the notice comes to your hand, what should you do immediately? How do you go about it? What are the methodologies that must be settled up? So dispute management procedure needs to be properly framed. And the next is, who is the authorized person who is going to deal on behalf of the government of India and make uh, statements of authority as to various issues? Who is it that speaks for the government? And then the third is, there should be coordination. Supposing it's a dispute with regard to a shipping car corporation. And then this would naturally affect the finance ministry, the Department of Economic Affairs, the law ministry, everybody. So there should be a coordination. There should be a nodal agency which will deal with the issue, collect all the ministers, collect all the secretaries, the department representatives, take collective views so that people will talk in one voice and not in different voices. Thank you very much, Justice Shri Krishna, for taking me through all that. So how does this all come back to the rights of citizens? At the start of this episode, you heard about the Equator against Chevron Texaco case. If you were wondering how ISDS can possibly represent the rights of citizens, you might not be alone. Lorenzo Cotulan says public engagement is exactly what's needed to reform the process, so it's fit for purpose. Let's listen to Lorenzo again. International dispute settlement raises very complex technical issues, but ultimately what is at stake is fundamentally political choices about how different interests are reconciled, private interests, public interests. Now, when we look at uh, policy issues such as land, housing, they immediately resonate with people because for many people, these are topics that immediately their relevance to their everyday lives is evident, is self-evident, right? Because many people depend on land for their livelihoods, they need housing with, with their families, etc. If you start a conversation about international investment law, it becomes very abstract, right? It feels very, very removed. And what we've been trying to do is to illustrate how a seemingly removed body of international economic law actually has very, very practical, direct implications for the everyday lives of people who may be living in a given locality, not only in general terms, but also, again, from a more legal perspective, for the exercise of their rights. So, if it's also down to citizens to have a voice in international investment issues, how can this be encouraged? Democratizing decision-making on such technical issues also requires work to document the issues, to raise awareness, to build an evidence base that is solid so that there can be more informed public discussion about these issues. And we find that investments, particularly in certain sectors, such as mining, large-scale agriculture, large-scale petroleum, infrastructure, etc., that these sectors illustrate particularly powerfully how investment projects quite often impinge on the rights of people who are affected by those by the projects so it can be an indigenous people indigenous community or it can be local residents in a, in a locality or in a town it can be small-scale farmers it can be forest dwellers pastoralists artisanal miners in some cases etc etc you have situations where relations among actors are complex relations that involve different branches of government at the central level, at the local level. They involve potentially multiple companies also that operate in the locality and certainly a variety of local actors who either have legally backed claims to resources or even if they do not because they are marginalized by the national legal system, they may have a very strong sense of connection to that particular land, to that particular territory. And so the implementation of this project, the sort of relations as 
associated with these projects typically raises fundamental questions about what investment is all about in the first place, whose investment it is, who has voice in shaping the investment process, at what stage, etc. And also how the rights of different actors are protected, including in the law. What seems to be a binary agreement between investor and state is far more complex in reality. Lorenzo explained how an investment dispute settlement in Colombia highlighted this point. Three individual arbitration had arisen from one investor state dispute. We sought to document a situation, a conflict in a place called Santurban, which is a beautiful, beautiful mountain environment not too far from the border with Venezuela. We learned there of a dispute that concerns large-scale mining concessions that uh, have been awarded by the government in the past uh, for exploration and that were now, in, in the case that we looked at more closely, were uh, at the point of moving to the mine development stage. And that raised concerns among many actors, both actors that were living not so much in the mountain environment, but uh, in the lowlands, but that saw the mountain environment as being very much part of their social fabric and also very concretely depended on the water that originates from a particular type of ecosystem that exists at the very top in the, in, a, in the higher part of the mountain mountainous area called the Paramo, which is essentially a high, high altitude wetland ecosystem found in parts of the Andes. As you understood, the mining threat had raised considerable concern for people in the lowlands, from fears for the environment to more fundamental concern over their access to water. There were also another part of the dispute in that the villages, the communities, the municipalities in the high altitude area, in the mountainous area, they also rely on mining for their livelihoods. They have done so for a long time uh, and they have for a long time practiced artisanal mining. And we, as, as we saw it, there were different views in those municipalities about the proposed large-scale mining project. Some saw it as an opportunity for jobs and livelihoods. Others were more worried about their future as artisanal small-scale miners. So what could say sort of divided communities and what that shows is the complexity of, of the disputes that really struggles to be reflected then in the way in which international investment law is set up um, because international investment law is primarily set up around the protection of foreign investment. And the question is about the boundary of that protection. I right? Did the state conduct violate the protections? And really, that focus doesn't really do justice to this greater complexity of rights at stake. In Lorenzo's mind, without a system that represents all the rights and stakeholders involved, ISDS is falling short of fairness. There are imbalances in rights, imbalances in remedies, which we think are highly problematic and which uh, I think also call for a more systemic approach to addressing investment issues that considers all the rights at stake and that therefore explores the linkages and takes very seriously the linkages between international investment law, for example, and human rights law or environmental law. I asked Lorenzo why he thought Latin American countries such as Argentina, Peru, Ecuador and Colombia were so active for investor-state disputes that impact civil society. There certainly are some regional or geographic patterns that we can observe in investment disputes and certainly in, in Latin America, particularly in connection with a significant push towards extractivist policies uh, whereby governments of different political stripes have 
pushed towards large-scale mining, large-scale petroleum, expanding the commodity frontier into areas inhabited or claimed by indigenous people. So we see in a number of Latin American countries that investment disputes very often have in their factual fabric elements of conflict that involves local groups that can be indigenous people, so it can be local residents of various sorts. And it would be interesting to corroborate that through further empirical research is that, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, we observed many more disputes or relatively more investment disputes that are based on contracts rather than treaties. I can certainly think of a number of contractual disputes concerning countries in Africa, in the extractive industry sector in particular, which creates a somewhat different dynamic in terms of transparency, even sort of being aware of the disputes existing, and also opportunities then for third parties to at least seek to have their voice heard. Next, let's talk about what else needs work in the way these investor-state disputes are being carried out. To discuss the ins and outs of these procedures in more detail, I spoke to Professor Julien Chess, a world-renowned expert on international economic law and international dispute resolution indeed. Julien is currently at City University of Hong Kong School of Law. Julien, thanks for joining me. In investor-state disputes where an investor may sue a country, proceedings can drag on for a matter of years, can't they? The average length of an investment treaty dispute is uh, three years and seven months. But there are some other studies done by either academics or, or some other organizations that give some slightly different numbers. What's interesting is that it's uh, sometimes difficult for them to draw a clear distinction between disputes which are settled, uh, disputes which result in uh, consent awards, disputes where proceedings are suspended, or even disputes which result in annulment proceedings and, and they are more and more. So that's really interesting because in international law, four years is quite quick, actually. That's something people probably don't have in mind. But if you compare with the International Court of Justice, for example, or even the WTO, which is quite quick, four years is pretty quick. But uh, you've worked recently on the new question of delay in these proceedings. Why is that? And why do we use the term of excessive delay? Is there a strategy behind that? So that's a good question. And that's the big question. There was always this belief that arbitration should be faster than other means of adjudications, right? And so uh, there's been a, a debate as for what should be the uh, ideal duration of investments and all commercial arbitration proceedings. And uh, I'm not sure there is a, a definitive answer, but reflecting on the duration of the proceedings is also interesting because it leads to explore and try to measure the use of a number of applications, of procedural applications in the course of the arbitration that have the immediate effects to DD proceedings. And what I could find out in my research in a nutshell is that we observe an increasing number of procedural applications in the context of investment arbitration, some which can be very legitimate, some others that may be more tactical tools precisely to delay proceedings. So the timeline is a really crucial question in proceedings between a state and an investor, right? But what kind of impact does a delay have on everyone involved? Excessive delay is going to be a problem for all of these stakeholders. The states, whether or not they prevail at the end, will have to incur a greater cost uh, in terms of legal defense when they, they get involved in these cases. The same is true for investors. They can be trapped in very long proceedings. And to some extent, it can become a problem for the arbitrators themselves, who may be seen as not able to deliver what is generally accepted from arbitration, which is a, a quick and a relatively inexpensive outcome. But I want to add something. 
So when we take the broader view or the systemic view, I think the duration of the proceedings can also become a practical problem when you look at witnesses, the fact that uh, witnesses may no longer be available. So not only does a long, drawn-out process end up costing more for the various parties involved and presumably taxpayers or the state side, but it also means key people might not be around to give evidence for a fair proceeding. And when it comes to cost, I wanted to find out more about how all this is funded. We are talking billions of dollars in some cases. Julien explained what he meant about third-party funding. So third-party funding can be uh, described as financing of a legal claim, either completely or partially by a third party. And so, in effect, a third party is someone who is not involved in the dispute and is, however, entitled to a share of the award if it's favorable to it, to the claimants, or, of course, nothing if it's unfavorable. And what's interesting here is that we observe in practice a quite significant rise in funding activity, in third-party funding activity. That's a phenomenon which is a bit difficult to date, but it's not very old. It's not more than, than 10 years that we can observe uh, a rise. Uh, it was initially concentrated in commercial arbitration, but it has now expanded to invest in arbitration. So it's really a new and quite significant change in the way claims are being engineered and financed by these actors. Well, Julien, it's not something very well known by the public, but it sounds to me like an actual business model, doesn't it? Sounds more business model than a legal proceeding. So people are funding an arbitration in the hope of making a profit if the side they're backing wins. Is that right? Who are these people? We don't know a lot. And for sure, we don't know everything. There is a certain degree of, of confidentiality in arbitration. And so it, it's sometimes it difficult to get the full picture, as, as you may understand. The, the key issue here is for tribunals and for responding parties, so the states in that case, to ensure that the claims are legitimate and that there is no abuse of rights or legal proceedings by these new actors. And so it's, it's an issue which is very interesting because there are many pros and cons uh, when you look at the academic discussions or even when you look at the question of TPF, so third-party funding at the domestic level. You know, Jurisdictions have taken different stance on the use of third-party funding before domestic courts. But when it comes to, to the, the narrow area of investment arbitration, it's interesting to see that tribunals appear to be more willing to grant disclosures after hearings as compared to some of the type of uh, applications. It's interesting to see that on, on that new and I would say specific question of third-party funding disclosure, Investment tribunals seems to be relatively liberal and they seem not to, to have too many issues with this kind of investors, which also means that every time states uh, raised objections on the status of the claimants and the use of third-party funding, the trend seems to be that for now, tribunals do not treat third-party funders as problems or issues. I should explain for our non-legal listeners that disclosure is the part of the litigation process where parties have to make related documents available to the other. We're talking about transparency here. Julian's saying that in investment tribunals, courts seem less fussed about the kind of funder or the ethics of this than in others. Say a tribunal wanted to find out more about a third-party funder though, what sort of impact does that have on the proceedings? Any application for disclosure will by definition come from the state. And so here, if we link that question to the delays, it may mean that states have been trying to use this kind of applications 
as a form of defense, as a form of defense to delay proceedings in which they may feel a little weaker. Now, as I said, the practice is for, for, for tribunals to dismiss this kind of applications with the practical effect that it does not delay too much investment proceedings, not more than, I think, on average, you know, two, three months. Is there a solution to the problem of excessive delay that we've discussed in investment arbitration? Are there discussions at the moment to harmonize the rules and make sure that there are no excessive delays then? If excessive delays, for whatever reason, are causing big problems in investment arbitration, what sort of work is taking place to reduce this in the processes? It's an important question, and it's a question that uh, may well become in- increasingly important in the years to come uh, uh, for two reasons. I think that on the one hand, states which are engaged in a broader reform of ISDS may well use this argument um, to further reflect on how to improve ISDS. Delays may also become an important question uh, in the ISDS reform when the UN Central Working Group will be looking at the question of appeal. On the other hand, and at the same time, delays will remain an issue for investors because for the commercial entities, there is not a great interest in maintaining or allowing too many delays. And so what can be done? Well, it's, it's a bit difficult. Let's say that to get things right, it's important to look at the, the data and what we know from the empirical analysis. And so this is what I've been working on. And what I find is that the, the empirical analysis so far reveals that uh, the procedural applications we, we, we talked about are increasingly employed, meaning that you find more and more of these kind of applications in virtually all investment disputes. But they do not always systematically result in massive delays. So they must seem to be a tool that parties are getting more aware of and that they now seem to be using systematically. So it does not exhaust the question because in many instances there is no genuine reason to invoke or to use these kind of applications. How can this be changed then in the processes? We are now at the stage where tribunals know better how to handle these kind of applications. They have been, in a sense, learning by doing. Tribunals, and that's something to, to keep an eye on, seems to be able to minimize the risks of delays. But I say, yeah, it's something to keep an eye on because there is always a risk uh, even if only theoretical for now, that perhaps some tribunals may let delays run a bit too much. So it will be important to, to see how things evolve. On the other side, it's always possible to, fi- to think about uh, further reforms, not just of SDS, or not of the SDS system as, as well, but to, to think about amending the rules, ICID rules, ICC rules, and all the other rules that may be in effect in various disputes, but has to clarify the conditions that may apply to this kind of, to these different applications. And I think, you know, if we take the, the broader perspective, and if you look at the, the rules, the, the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce rules, the ICC rules, the ICC rules, it's a fact that these rules have been evolving quite a lot over the past 10 or 20 years. And so quite naturally, any new developments in practice is also very likely to, to feed the further revisions of these rules in, in a given direction and very likely to better control the use of procedural applications in ASDS. Well, thank you so much, Julien. It sounds like tightening up procedures through reform and minimizing delay through tribunals could both mean these investor-state disputes reach resolution more quickly and with less costs. Let's look at another example now, that of Bangladesh. Compared to India or Pakistan, Bangladesh has experienced few ISDS cases. I spoke to Professor Rumana Islam from the University of Dhaka. Even if you compare with other developing countries like the Latin American countries, which already had many countries, I can say, like Argentina, Colombia, which had faced a few dozens of ISDS claims, Bangladesh has much 
less experience uh, on of those claims from the foreign investors. Romana thinks that the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic will see this change. I ask if that is due to the country's reliance upon the textile and garment industries in particular. It's mainly investment contracts signed by the foreign investors and the, the, their local partners or the government. In terms of garments industry, yes, uh, you have rightly identified it is one of the major sectors which actually contributes to the economy of the Bangladesh and which is one of the uh, main sources of earning. It has significantly contributed to the economic development of the country. But one thing regarding the garments industry is that uh, different industrial catastrophes that took place uh, uh, in 2011 and many uh, incidents which actually raises severe concerns about human rights, labor rights and the working conditions in those uh, areas. So the foreign investors, whether a Bangladesh government has successfully ensured that these foreign investors and the buyers who take products from these garments factories, whether how much they are responsible for this, this catastrophe and how can we hold accountable that area is largely silent or I would say completely absent. So these are the some of the arguments that are currently taking place. Many NGOs have come forward with these arguments and especially after the UN guiding principle on business and human rights, the NGO and the civil society have started to speak on this issue. So I think the, if we look forward, this is an area that the government needs to seriously consider that how we make the foreign investor take their responsibility in especially in this particular sector one of the reason uh, for very successful garments investments in bangladesh is the uh, because of it's very cheap labor but then when we say cheap labor it's a kind of an exploitation of the poor people right so if bangladesh wants to Uh, include and be uh, in terms of uh, other indicators, human development index, and along with the economic development. Obviously, Bangladesh government needs to take this issue seriously. Rumina's point is that human rights need to be accounted for as part of investments. That's something that might not have been historically a part of investor stake deals. Given the negative impacts of COVID upon people working in the garment industries, She thinks it's likely there will be an arbitration on the way and it's something both states and foreign investors should mitigate in future deals. When we think about the thing in a broader prospect, like environmental issues and other things, all this needs to be accumulated. Because when we think about uh, the government's investment, we rarely think about the environment or uh, what uh, economic impact it is going to have uh, in terms of social benefits and other things. So these are the things I think uh, that needs to be addressed. And the stakeholders, especially the local partners, the government's workers, they also need to have a voice in terms of these uh, issues or when in terms of policy making. Similar to Lorenzo's point earlier on giving citizens, workers and stakeholders a voice in deals that concern them seems to be one way we can minimize the collateral damage investor states disputes sometimes have. Environmental concerns are also a key factor in dispute management. Rumana highlighted the ISDS disputes resolved over gas blowouts. There have been several of these incidents where negligence has led to explosions, flames, agricultural and geological damage have impacted lives dramatically. In spite of winning the dispute, she points out that at no point citizens' voices or experiences were present in the arbitration. We get the compensation, Bangladesh government got the compensation, but how are you going to allocate that amount of compensation to the local community who are the prime victim of this uh, Uh, blowout, right? For this negligent blowout. So there is no actually no policy. I haven't actually heard anything that how you identify who were affected, who were aggrieved and who were victim of that blowout and what do they actually want 
and how you actually compensate because it's not only the person that you just give them some amount of money it's their livelihood right they live in a community and in some areas where uh, indigenous people live it also has to relate with uh, their cultural heritage and other things so these things are completely ignored so when we think about compensation we appreciate okay that's a big win uh, that the government has owned it has got a uh, 1 billion compensation amount of money but who is actually going to benefit from this compensation because certainly when we think about the victims uh, they don't get the appropriate amount for the thing that have they have suffered and there are certain things which you cannot actually compensate in terms of money right if that's your answer ancestral home like you have been living there for last four generation and then then simply you have to be evacuated you have to be evicted from that place how do you compensate that person or if there is a grave of your parents in that area how do you compensate that loss issues such as community rehabilitation and compensation so far seem to be left out of ISCS proceedings in the main in this episode We've looked at the problematic procedures that cause these proceedings to cost vast amounts of money to states and investors alike. But more importantly, we have highlighted the areas where human lives and rights are at great risk. In any large-scale exploitation, there is a local-scale impact, and that's where we are seeing displacement of people from their lands and cultural heritage and communities damage in terms of health livelihoods or security we are seeing people deny their human rights and their voices sideline even if their nations are compensated as a whole we are also seeing environments destroyed and our global challenges of biodiversity loss and climate damage exacerbated by an imbalance of protections towards foreign investors in the instruments if i can take away some areas which are ripe for development in investor state dispute settlement it would firstly be to give a voice to the citizens and to engage them in the contracts in the treaties that may define their lives and livelihoods this is the role of our state after all to represent its people and environment first we have heard how departmental and government structuring can lead to issues with delays and the need for accountability in processes these are things that states can do to protect their citizens in future deals as for the ongoing isds arbitration across the world there are many still to be resolved before a just future can be designed for stakeholders We have no time to lose now. In making ISDS a fairer instrument, it's down to governments, the legal profession and citizens to play their part. Thank you for listening to this episode of Our Rights in Action. I hope it has given you much to think about, much to discover about international investment dispute settlement. I am Professor Leila Shukrun and you can follow me on Twitter at L Shukrun. I'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions on this episode. You can rate and leave a review to help more people find us and listen to more episodes of Our Rights in Action. Please share this episode with a friend and start a conversation today about investor state dispute settlement and international investment and follow this podcast on your app of choice to get our next episode automatically i'll see you next time thank you very much again